This is a review of uh, the book American Agriculture from Farm Families to Agribusinesses by Mark Weatherington. First, I'll start with just some takeaways um, and opinions of uh, how I felt about the book, and then I'm going to, I kind of just took some cliff notes of the introduction, and then I also just made sort of an outline of the uh, the book's chapters and the sections within the chapter. So first, this book was quality. This is really important stuff. I really appreciated how uh, the outline of especially the problems how did we get to where we are today with our food system in agriculture where it seems like uh, we've, we've got some problems and identifying the problems and yeah, how did we get to where we are today? Really well done on that. I've kind of been looking for this information for a while, a, a packaging of it in this did a really great job of that. Now, as I go, as I was kind of writing out the the introduction, it's like, (laughs) it's pretty severe and uh, kind of a bummer. And it's focusing on the problems. There is some prescription in here, but there's not a lot of prescription. And I, before I get into like the, not to I don't don't want to make it total doom and gloom and uh so you know I'll refer to so many of the other episodes on here for more prescriptions and I have said in multiple podcasts that I feel reassured by just how feasible it seems some of the solutions are for this but that said, you know, there's also, I still have a lot of questions and it's, it can get difficult to pin down exactly, well, what is the problem and how did, how did we get to this point? And for that, this was really strong. The only thing that I was hoping to get a little more information on for historical context in our agriculture and something that seems to me to be a pretty big part of it and, and much more like recently in our history. But that's uh, the composition of our agricultural workforce that is made up by significant numbers of Central Americans. There's only sort of like he touches on it, but not a whole lot. And it seems to me that's, I guess that was just, that's still something I want to know more about. And it seems like it would weigh a little bit more in our history. And uh, it's just not quite the direction he went, but um, because otherwise I think trying to, and he's trying to get the whole U.S. history 
including a bit about Native American um, agriculture practices. And for that, I think uh, there was a really, it was pretty balanced. Yeah, just the only small thing that was not perhaps in there enough was that regarding um, more recent immigrant workers and how much of a percentage of our workforce they are. So, but anyways, now let's go on to uh, notes on the, in, in the introduction of this book and what, and now more like what he is saying. So he points out the themes of the of the problems that led us to where we are today. The themes are control, consolidation, and chemicals. For control, we're talking about control of uh, capital, land, labor, animals, machines, fertilizers, pesticides, and daily farm decisions. Who's in control? Consolidation is in relation to uh, the connection of farmers with resources, the stability and sustainability of seed-to-shelf operations, and consolidation has manifested into agribusiness as we see it today. And for chemicals, this is... uh, the predominance of chemical use in farming is possible because of control and consolidation. Science, technology, engineering resources are uh, necessary. And uh, chemical farming involves the manipulation of synthetic fertilizers, seeds, and pesticides. Uh, he poses one central question and that is how did we get to where we are today and uh so taking you know in taking these themes he's relating the creation uh the, the the themes relate to the creation of violent and exploitative environment across US history Uh, involving the displacement of native people off their land, growth and consolidation of cash crop cultures, importing slaves for labor, sharecropping and tenant farming, the rise of industrial farms, decline of small-scale family farming over time, uh, dependence on chemical NPK fertilizer, environmental degradation, the polluted air and water, deforestation, toxic soils, oppression of workers, and also economic, political, social, racial, and class imbalances. Now just take a step back. Another thing that I was really struck with here in the point being made is how farmers were always screwed. Farmers throughout our history were always sort of up against it. It's rare that we have this uh, throughout our history from beginning until now. 
maybe there's a, a romanticizing of a time when farmers could be independent and be successful. And there were a few times where this was more possible than others, but generally speaking, for the most part, farmers were controlled by elites and the decisions on what happens to land and what is grown was from the start um, of you know Europeans coming over to America this is this is before this this is after um, you know the way that Native Americans did it um, from that point on on this continent there was there was already control and this control has ebbed and flowed but it's trending towards greater consolidation he argues but at the same time it's it's important context to understand I think that uh, it was always rough it was always really hard to be a farmer and rarely could you be independent and successful except for a few moments in time. And, you know, I would be really interested in focusing in a little bit more on those good times and what were the policies. And th- that those points could be picked out and highlighted. And really, I wish I would have maybe focused more on that because this whole thing is a little bit more um, understanding the problems. But understanding when things went good is also, I think, really important um, but again, all, also really important context to have a little more grounding in our understanding for whether or not there was ever in this country an independent farmer ethic, including like now, where if you listen to like, say, country music, there's a romanticizing of farm life as being able to be independent and uh but that doesn't the reality is that that's not that's just not really the case farmers are not independent so uh okay now just briefly through chapters a, a few notes uh the first two chapters are uh, about the beginnings of farming in America uh including a little bit of native history in farming. Um, And it's also due to the crop regions. Um, And this is just a summary. Like, this book is not that long. It's like 200 pages. But there are so many little tidbits in here that are really important context. And whether or not you're just a person who's into agriculture, if you're trying to just understand our food system, but also more broadly, if you're trying to understand... Our economy, our society, our food culture, this information is, man, it's really critical and it's really grounding. So anyways, yeah, this, this, these first two chapters are just highlighting the change in gender control in agriculture where uh, Native American women were the ones that made the decisions in agriculture um, to where it became um, exclusively male-dominated and still to this day 
that has uh, persisted for the most part. Uh, these initial chapters are talking about the cash crop system and, and slavery. And it's also talking about the consolidation of land um, by Westerners from the natives. Chapter 3 is about market revolutions uh, and the transfer, transformation in the north with the building of railroads, canals, cities, and factories and how that set them up ahead of the south. And chapter 4 is a, about the Civil War and Reconstruction, the victory of the north and the Republican Party and Southern agricultural uh, stagnation to follow, and a crop lean system that was developed involving freed people and landless white people. Chapter five is home on the range? Question mark. Talking a lot about um, especially grazing of animals. And grazelands, as uh, there was a pushing westward that was persistent uh, across our history, and eventually we make our way across the Mississippi and all the way into areas that are more arid, where, uh, and all throughout, there was grazing of animals occurring. So this chapter talks about post war transportation and communication system expansion and how that enabled northern livestock expansion and the grazing of animals and and that type of farming goes north uh, post-Civil War. And uh, the north continues to consolidate power and influence on everything, including agriculture, through the 1800s. Chapter six is uh, about World War, the World War era and the Depression era, which involved control and consolidation and con chemical farming developing. It involved scientific and technological advances, uh, fertilizer and mechanization, GMOs, hormones. Chapter seven is about the get big or get out policy and movement that related to uh, NPK fertilizer and the quote unquote green revolution and the uh, it involved uh, farm consolidation and specialization in commodity crops, predominantly corn and soy. Chapter eight is the future. What kind of agriculture do you want? And so he's posing the question: uh, Did get big or get at? Did get big or get out work? Uh, he talks about the '80s farm crisis, the NAFTA policy, the critics of big agriculture, which call the affair scandalous and say this ain't normal. And talks about the decline of the farmer's share in market earnings throughout the 1900s. And now just a few other uh, points that are highlighted in the introduction of this book. 
that uh, in 1900, 40% of the U.S. population lived on farms and worked on farms. Today, that is 2%. Millions of farmers have left the land in the past 100 years, and there was an intentional federal policy that facilitated this. Oftentimes, this was not a choice for farmers to leave the land. The average farm size by 1980 was 450 acres. This was also a, a, a federal policy. Uh, tenants, sharecroppers, independents, uh, all were consolidated and bought out. Uh, commodity crop production prevailed. Billions in subsidies for GMO synthetic sprays. 85% of farm subsidies go to the largest commodity farmers. The strategy was to remove less efficient, quote-unquote, farmers to, uh, who, who lacked the capital to invest in technology. The big agriculture lobby grew and became powerful and very influential, um, there were gains in outputs of commodity crops, which kind of led to the mantra that, oh, well, we need to do it this way because we are feeding, this is how we feed the world. But we wonder if we're feeding the world if we're, or if we're even feeding ourselves when we look at the statistic that today, 12% of the U.S., is uh, food secure. 12% of U.S. families are food insecure. That's 40 million people. He goes on to ask uh, a little bit about, and then talk a little bit about, uh, well, why do farmers farm? When you consider that there are uh, decreased numbers of farmers, it involves great economic uncertainty, Ecological uncertainty with the weather. The uh, farmers are generally in debt. There's high management complexity, declining crop prices, high suicide rates. He is he mentions that in the Trump era, at least amongst Midwestern farmers, there was optimism, and they were very influential in the 2016 election. But what happened was uh, one particular event, the export tariffs, uh, prices decreased for American uh, farmers, while at the same time their costs stayed the same. And one can only speculate, but it's suggested that political backlash that followed was perhaps related to this. He, uh, he notes that, uh, well, why do they do it then? They, they've got to do it for love. Farmers love growing plants and animals. They love working outdoors with their family on their own land. If they have that privilege and, uh, 
for the few who are able to pull it off, there's a sense of independence, a sense of being unbossed. He notes uh, that good farmers are stewards of creation. They're stewards of the soil and the water. They conserve soil and water. And uh, they also preserve natural wildlife and scenery. He mentions here some uh, the idyllic pre-World War II farming methods, which he argues, even though, again, it, it was still really tough, so you don't want to overstate how nice it was back then, but he's arguing that it was certainly better than it is today. And back then, farmers more so could work their own land with their own hands, and they would use mostly animal power if they needed it. But this farming was much lower input. He notes how a lot of farmers back then, they were doing safety-first farming, where it was first about growing enough for your family, um, and then from there, the surplus went to, was sold locally, exclusively locally. Um, and then lastly in the introduction, going back to where are we now post-World War II, what went wrong, the traditional path displaced by commercial and industrial um, type of agriculture that has high inputs of hybrid seeds, pesticides, fertilizers, and dependence on machines. It views agriculture as industry and big business. It places efficiency at the cost of human involvement, hence the removal of millions of farmers. And he asks, how long will meaningful human involvement in agriculture continue? So next here, I'll go just over each chapter, and this is just kind of a highlighting like bulletin points and, and phrases that, that, that discuss, that he goes on to discuss these points in further detail in the book. I'm just going to shoot these off just saying the, the words and getting a sense for what, what he's talking about in these chapters. In the first chapter, Beginnings, the sections are The Origins of American Agriculture, American Indian Agriculture, and then Euro-American Agriculture, The Violence of Agriculture, The Agricultural Revolution, Origins of Colonial Farmers, Farming Society, in the politics of farming. In chapter 2, Crop Regions, he talks about Indian removal, technological change, and he talks about the wheat belt, the corn belt, tobacco, hemp, cotton, and sugar. He talks about the crop regions and mixed farming, and then he talks about reform of agriculture. In chapter 3, Market Revolutions, he talks about uh, markets through western New York to upper Mississippi Valley. 
He talks about steamboats, the great American desert, agricultural exports, and the farmer's place in society. In chapter 4, Civil Wars and Reconstruction, he talks about how this was a farmer's war fought by farmers. He talks about the reconstructions, the onset of the crop lean system in the South, agriculture in Appalachia, traditionally oppressed, and the history and origin of that oppression begins here. And then he talks about the Great Plains and how agriculture's coming across into the Great Plains, changing dramatically the makeup and biodiversity of the Great Plains. Chapter 5, Home on the Range. He talks about the open range, the further going west into now um, the more arid areas. He talks about the history of woods ranching and grazing in the woods. Um, talks about the Southern Range, which was the, the pine forests of the South that were great grazing lands, but were systematically overgrazed and were also cut for timber and forested heavily and no longer do we have much of a southern range he then talks about the west and again this is the arid area that was grazed and um, we're moving west across the country through the 1800s more and more people are moving west using it for agriculture um and then he talks, he's moving on into the more modern area and our practices of grazing now where a lot of the lands that are grazed in the West are, are federal lands. And this, uh, this is a place where consolidation of lands and therefore the means of production and the lack of independence in what we uh, think of, you know, the, the wild, wild west and its taming and control. And he also talks a, a bit about more modern uh, affair of fracking on the range and the risks that that poses. In chapter six, World Wars and the Great Depression. He talks about uh, farm relief and the onset of the farm bills and the beginnings of uh, subsidy programs. He talks about the Dust Bowl, which this is a major turning point, and we see really the effects of uh, tilling, which another aside here. I think one thing I was struck with was just how early on and how severe early on in U.S. history 
the environmental degradation took place. Even really from the start, and as uh, really anywhere they went, <laughs> they were being really irresponsible with land use practices. And I'm talking about, you know, Western people. <clears throat> yeah, the degradation of the land and uh, deforestation. And even though there wasn't such the destructive force that machines are, the, the, the popularization of the plow and the lack of mindfulness in how to, even if you are going to plow, doing it in an ecologically responsible way so that you don't cause erosion and you don't cause the um, priceless topsoils to be washing away, that process of topsoil loss started happening from the jump back in the 1600s with uh, Euro-American agriculture practices and uh, only accelerated. And that led to the Dust Bowl. And the the reason for the, the Midwest being particularly vulnerable was because um, because of the unique ecology there, the grass is being lost, and the rapid um, with with high rain and especially in the high rain area, just the rapid erosion there, and it being um, I guess flat as well contributes to this phenomenon of the Dust Bowl, which I guess I didn't realize, everybody knows about the Dust Bowl and how devastating that was, but really not under understating just what a disaster that was, what a epidemic that was, and that, you know, the devastation that that caused leading to the policies that followed. And unfortunately, not really, these policies not always uh, getting to the core of the issue that happened there. Um, because then you had uh, only, from there, increased use of tractors. Um, you had the big farm plan beginning uh, to form, and then you had uh, World War II, which was an event that actually caused a farming price increase. And this is a pe period of time around the, around the war where farm prices increased and you had a little bit of a period of time where farming, there, there seemed to be re renewed hope that farming can turn a corner and become, become once again a a more viable way of living. In chapter 7, this is titled Get Big or Get Out. It's all about the policies that, um, federal policy that caused uh, market consolidation. Talking about how once when 
there used to be in most towns several different markets throughout the main street and uh, a lot more pretty much exclusively direct farmer to customer sales but how um the beginnings of the uh post world war 2 era you see market consolidation where you have like a, a central market that starts to buy out all the other markets and becomes itself independent from the farmer and the farmer more and more so has to wholesale to a market this chapter talks about the farm crisis of the 1980s <clears throat> another period of time where you had price decreases <clears throat> that led farmers to just be going into further and further debt and were even told to like stop uh growing food because it wasn't even worth growing food at all they would lose money by trying to grow their crops um, it talks about the history of the farm bills, um, which involves a, a, per, a perpetuating this get big or get out mentality, uh, where they were actively encouraging farmers to, the bigger farmers to buy up the smaller ones. And encouraging them to buy, uh, to farm in a way that was dependent on high inputs and mechanization. Um, this talks about farmers on the move, farmers moving uh, all over the whole continent. And uh, uh, it talks about the new plantations. This is where... We're mentioning like if you look at what farmer, how much are farmers really different from they from when the the time when we had a plantation system, and he argues not that much different. He talks about what NAFTA has done to influence, uh, and kind of be a perpetuation of get big and get out. He talks about what's happening here in the twenty first century. Um, sort of seeing what happens from NAFTA. and uh, But then he also talks about organic farming and some alternatives to the agribusiness model that may be effective in mitigating some of the biggest problems caused by it. Chapter 8. The future, what kind of agriculture do you want? Here he's talking about the reality of mergers. He talks about family farms and whether or not we really still have family farms. He talks about the farm bills of the 2000s, which are just a more or less a continuation of the status quo, though there are some peanuts thrown to pet projects like uh, 
it's a little bit more diversified, but still the majority of the subsidies are going to a few. Uh, he talks about, he mentions like the dynamic for women and minority farmers and how though there are there's some growth there, their numbers are still really small and their influence is really small. He talks about the next generation of farming. He mentions a few sort of prescriptions. He's really anti, uh, you know, he seems to be sort of anti-government. He thinks the government's influence on farming has generally been not good. And he seems to be hopeful that we will have... Uh, the, the youth of today um, and younger farmers are given opportunities to inherit farms based on their willingness to try doing it a different way. Um, and uh, lastly, he talks about how in 2018 there was a restructuring of NAFTA the U.S., Mexico, and Canada agreement, which, though there are some subtle changes here and there, it's more or less a continuation of the status quo through 2023 where it's going to kind of be up for another update. So, You know, it's kind of funny to me because going through this summary, it's actually seemingly a lot more doom and gloom than when I was reading it. When I was reading it, it felt like it was giving me just context that was really important to understanding what really is going on right now. It answered some questions that I had. Um, when I advocate for regionalizing the food system and local food systems, which I tr I try to be a lot more about the solutions and not just um, griping about what the problems are. And then when I was reading the book, I didn't really feel like it was griping. But in this summary, it seems like it's just griping. <laughs> but at the same time, like again, I think he did a really good job of just outlining where the problems lie. Because sometimes I get into discussions with people and I'm sort of talking about why I believe in the local food system and the times sometimes when I get pushback from people. Um, and sometimes just in my own train of thought about why I'm doing what I'm doing, I guess you have to have some motivation that you're working to solve some problem. And generally that's what I feel like. But sometimes when I look at the problem and you start to zoom in, when I start to zoom in on the problem it kind of becomes a little blurry. And I feel like I just don't, I didn't have all the facts to say, well, this is the problem. This is why it happened too. And for that, this book did a really good job. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, and from this, I think you can gain... Yeah, it just doesn't have a lot for prescription then, which makes it seem kind of just like a bummer. And I don't I don't like 
just leaving something at like, oh, well, this is a problem and then not having any idea for what to do about it. Like some of the people I talk to about the food system, I mentioned, you know, some people that I know that are really concerned about the price of food right now. Uh, I mentioned this on my last podcast is about this, but the thing is that they'll point out like, okay, yeah, this is a little bit of a problem, but then what do we do about it? And I don't know, just a lot of, there doesn't seem to be a lot of people who are thinking about the answers as much. And if, if we're just looking at the problem and we don't start to think about then a solution, then it just becomes a bummer. And I can't, uh, so I, I'm trying to bring in some possible solutions in this podcast as well. Um, but again, for better understanding the problems, this book is huge. 